0: Welcome to FinCast. I'm Juan Zarati, your host. On this episode, The Regulator's Forecast, Financial Crime, Sanctions, and The Regulator's Focus in 2023. A great discussion with our regulators at K2 Integrity on episode 36. Welcome back to FinCast. Why isn't the administration moving harder on sanctions? There's more of a military solution to this than most terrorist financing issues.
1: Organizational structures as a key component for helping to develop combat. White
0: knights of illicit finance are a myth. They don't really exist. It's a direct attack on the, on the money laundering vulnerability. President Putin's reaction to any of these allegations in the past has been, prove it. Welcome back to FinCast episode 36. I'm here with my great colleagues, Emma Walker, Mariano Federici, and Brian Stierwald to have a beginning of the year discussion in 2023 about where the regulators around the world are perceiving financial crime, sanctions, and other related risks that you should be aware of and that we're certainly watching. I'm excited about this panel because in many ways it highlights the deep expertise the firm has with former senior regulators from around the world. And those individuals are doing continuous uh, great work with uh, clients as we speak. Emma Walker is an, an associate managing director for us in our London office, long career at the Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA, as a legal and supervisorial expert, worked on some of the biggest bank supervision cases related to fraud, conspiracy, anti money laundering. She was also a former prosecutor in the Revenue and Customs Service for Her Majesty's government. So, Emma, welcome, and we're very happy to have you.
2: Thanks very much, Juan.
0: We also have the uh, famous Mariano Federici. Uh, Those of you who follow K2 Integrity know we've had a FinCast uh, one-on-one conversation with Mariano. Mariano is a senior managing director for the firm Sits in Miami for us. As you know, former head of the Argentine Financial Intelligence Unit, former chair of the Egmont Group. And many, many more titles. Uh, But Mariano, it's wonderful to have you on this FinCast again.
3: Honored to be here again, Juan.
0: Thank you, Mariano. And last but certainly not least, Brian Starwalt, who was the star of Episode 35, if you had a chance to listen to that late last year. Brian, as you know, is a senior managing director for the firm, sits with us in Washington, D.C., but is soon to be running our office in Abu Dhabi. Brian, a stellar three-decade-long career as a regulator, 14 years most recently for the Dubai Financial Services Authority, the DFSA, where he was the CEO uh, running supervision for the DIFC. Everything in Dubai that was going right is owed to Brian, I would say. Regulated over 500 entities, ushered in their digital uh, currency regime, and was also the co-chair of the Basel Consultative Group which is part of the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision's Governance Structure. Brian,
1: welcome back. Thank you, Juan. It's a great pleasure to be here.
0: What we want to do with you all is talk about the regulatory and risk environment in 2023. And there's a lot to talk about. The FTX scandal to end last year has uh, deepened the crypto winter, continued OFAC sanctions uh, with the oil cap tied to the Russia regime announced in December, financial crime and anti-corruption investigations and enforcement actions underway, continued investment uh, scrutiny around investments from around the world, and a whole range of other regulatory actions and focus. So we want to get the insights of our uh, deep experts about this. So Emma, let's turn to you first to talk about what you're seeing to start 2023 and what What surprises you and what maybe doesn't surprise you?
2: Thanks very much. Well, yeah, it's been a busy start to 2023 for FCA enforcement because two fines have already been imposed. Uh, They were imposed by the 11th of January this year, which is really quite unusual for the FCA. And notably, both fines relate to failures in uh, anti-money laundering systems and controls. So on the 10th of January, Guaranteed Trust Bank uh, was fined over £7.6 million. It had been previously fined for similar failings in 2013. And the very next day, our IAM Bank was fined just over £4 million for failures in relation to its AML control framework. I advised on that case while I was at the Financial Conduct Authority. I also advised on the investigation against Santander UK PLC, who were themselves fined £108 million on the 8th of December last year. The serious and persistent gaps in their AML Um, controls affecting their business banking customers. Now, last February, the FCA confirmed that there were 41 open enforcement investigations into potential AML failings. So despite this early enforcement activity in 2023, I'm expecting to see further FCA fines in the AML space during the course of this year.
0: Fascinating and great summary, Emma. I think what you're seeing in the UK and what you're describing certainly is playing out to a certain extent in the US. You've seen it The last year or two in in Europe as well, and I think you're seeing more attention from New York DFS again to AML systems and controls. You're seeing it from the OCC and the Fed, Uh, and certainly FinCEN, with the uh, the new regulations and focus in the wake of AMLA in 2020. I think has has drawn more and more attention to AML controls or lack thereof for institutions, both in the in the formal financial sector, but but also in new sectors like crypto. And I'm going to come back to you with some UK specific and Europe specific questions, but I want to turn to Brian next because Brian has been focusing quite a bit on the digital currency space. And Brian, what do you see to start 2023?
1: Well, I think one this is the year when uh, when regulators are really putting crypto digital assets. Um, uh, digital currencies, et cetera, at the front of their agenda. And there's not a regulator in the world right now that doesn't have regulation of crypto either at the top of their agenda um, or number two, number three. Um, uh, it's in the top three of everybody's focus. And that includes the, the standard setters, you know? And so if you if you start with the Financial Stability Board, I mean, they've got two ongoing papers out right now, um, and consultations and, and some final papers on uh, stable coins. That's their, I think, primary focus because stablecoins get a little bit too close to a bank deposit, and they have real contagion risk. Uh, when a stablecoin falls over, which is should be the liquidity on ramp um, for the whole digital asset sector, uh, that puts the whole sector um, uh, in spotlight. And we saw the after effects of the Terra Luna uh, episode this year, and and what what effect that that really had on the whole on the whole space. And that is contagion, and that's exactly what the Financial Stability Board. Um, uh, is getting at. Um, also, if you you mentioned you know my role in the Basel consultative group and the Basel committee, I think the Basel committee um, uh, is really focused on containment of of making sure that those stability concerns don't affect a safety net, um, don't affect you know deposit insurance or their lender of last resort mechanisms. Uh, and so you see a lot of efforts there of just making sure. Um, that either banks stay away, um, or if you want to engage, um, you have to have a plan, and that plan has to be pre-approved. And not uh, there, there's no forgiveness episode here. There's permission episodes, and you saw that from the New York Department of Financial Services uh, as well. So th- those are the standard setters, you know, and the prudential standard setters. IOSCO um, with the Securities Commission, so I think, also uh, will have a very significant role to play here because these are the conduct regulators, and this is probably. Where the regulation of crypto will will find itself, whereas the banks want to push it away, the 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 more appropriate regulator are the conduct regulators like the FCA, where where uh, where Emma has her significant expertise. And if you look at regulators around the world and how they're dealing with these standards, there's a variety of uh, of of ways that uh, regulators are deciding to deal with this all the way from one end of the spectrum where MAS, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, one of the world's best regulators, uh, has said retail customers should not have this asset in their portfolio. So they're, they're, they're moving toward the banning aspect. Um, other regulators, as I mentioned, the OCC, FDIC, Federal Reserve, New York Department of Financial Services, and now the Hong Kong Securities and Futures Commission, this, just recently, um, have said they're gonna go with a whitelist of tokens that only the most liquid can be can be accessed by retail customers. And then finally you've got the rest of the world just trying to figure out how this how this asset works its way into uh, portfolios. But without question, uh, I think the the regulator who took this the most seriously and the earliest has been the FATF. Mariano can probably highlight a few things um, there as well, but they they were on the forefront of seeing where the money laundering risks and the fraud risks go. Um, uh, with with the digital asset and cryptocurrency space, and and tried to address it early on. The problem, and this will be my last comment. Uh, I don't want to monopolize everything, but the the the, the problem uh, was that frontline regulators were not regulating so much the crypto firms, and so the early warning indicator of an inspection um, that goes along with a bank or a securities firm wasn't there. So everyone was reacting to a money laundering risk uh, rather than looking for the money laundering risk through a regulated entity. And that also has to change this year.
0: Brian, that's a super helpful summary and setting the landscape on digital currency regulation. I do want to come back to you as we get through this conversation to understand your sense of the theory of the case as to how to regulate, right? Because I think 2021, 2022 really saw lack of clarity as to how to regulate or how to think about the industry. I think you're starting to see regulators crystallize and thinking on that. So I want to come back to you on that. Mariano, you've been referenced now a couple of times. I want to turn to you on how you're viewing the world and, and you've had a very sort of inherently global view given your role as chair of the Egmont Group, your various roles for the FATF. What's your sense of where the international standards and in particular, where the FATF is headed in 2023?
3: Yeah, thanks for that question, Juan. Uh, indeed, I think uh, there are uh, changes in priorities uh, at the international level, which coincide with the change of the presidency at the FATF. You know, there is a new president that has just stepped in, Raja Kumar uh, from Singapore. He led his first plenary in uh, October of 2022 and laid out uh, Singapore's priorities for uh, the FATF in the in the coming years. Of course, there are many things that have been uh, undertaken by the German presidency that will continue to be priorities such as monitoring risks and, and, and particularly in relation to virtual assets and virtual asset service providers, uh, monitoring the uh, implementation of the standards and the uh, evolution of the regulatory uh, effort in, in relation with, with virtual assets, that will continue to be a priority. Overseeing also the completion of guidance around beneficial ownership information, for legal persons and, uh, guiding proposals to amend uh, the FATF recommendations on beneficial ownership information for, for trusts and other legal arrangements will also be a top priority. Uh, I think Singapore has also emphasized that with regards to effectiveness, Uh, There will be uh, an effort in in terms of promoting competent authorities, adoption of new technology and innovation around data analytics and uh, new technology to assist uh, in identifying trends, patterns, and in monitoring risks to achieve good AML-CFT outcomes by, by sharing and focusing on appropriate case studies as well. But uh, one of the main priorities that has been outlined by the new presidency is around the issue of uh, strengthening asset recovery. As you know, Juan, it it is estimated globally that less than 1% of global illicit financial flows are being intercepted and recovered by countries. This is unfortunately a very low uh, statistic. uh, and, And as a result, the Singapore presidency has expressed an interest in focusing on driving forward actions to help countries increase asset recovery, including through expediting, uh, you know, existing work and proposing new operational initiatives. So I think we're going to see a lot of regulatory spillover of this initiative around jurisdictions, more roles for FIUs potentially in terms of acquiring their ability to freeze assets administratively as well. To avoid assets uh, that are detected fleeing in the course of an investigation, more role for public-private partnerships uh, uh, around um, uh, the asset recovery effort uh, as well. I think FATF will, will analyze the state of asset recovery networks and chart a pathway for members to to develop stronger operational systems, and we'll see a a, a, um, a, a lot of opportunities arising for not only new innovation around uh, public sector efforts, but also for joint collaboration with the, um, with the private sector as well. And then finally, I think another important priority that, that has been emphasized and is probably related with, with uh, a post-pandemic effect is countering the uh, cyber-enabled illicit finance mm-hmm. crimes. Uh, we know online fraud, scams, ransomware, and other COVID-related phishing activities Really dominated the landscape since the pandemic broke out in 2020. Many jurisdictions are finding it really challenging to to stop and even contain these type of schemes, uh, which are many you know many times sophisticated. And I think the Singapore Presidency has outlined uh, an idea for new initiatives uh, to focus on money laundering and terrorist financing linked to cyber-enabled fraud and scams. So we're probably going to see a lot of uh, Movement around this area as well,
1: Mariano.
0: Quite cr- comprehensive. I'm going to come back to you on what you've seen the Egmont Group of FIUs, especially with respect to Russia. But I do want to comment on something you said because I think it's important and it's highlighted in the fat of priorities. Uh, and I want to come back to Emma and Brian on this. It's the blending of risks. It's the reality that no longer uh, is money laundering risk viewed separately from fraud. Is that's not viewed separately from sanctions, that's not viewed separately from export controls. There's there's a, a much more um, aggressive blending of risk uh, in the financial crime and sanctions space than, than ever before, in, to include cyber, cyber-enabled criminality and activity. It's also informing, I think, some of the uh, initiatives like asset recovery, where, especially in the Russia context, you have Russian sanctions being put in place, but also the search for oligarchs' assets that are sitting uh, directly astride and dovetailing with those sanctions. And the question of how you go about engaging in asset recovery and hunts, uh, which is something our firm does quite a bit and globally, how that then dovetails and how it dovetails even with ransomware where we've seen two of the largest recoveries in uh, American history through the Department of Justice to the tune of uh, you know, $3 billion each thereabouts, done through the crypto lens and and so there's there's a really fascinating question here about the blending of risk and then the responses that go along with it like asset recovery
3: just just to add another example of that blending that you're talking about we see it also in the in 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 the crypto space you know when uh, rogue states particularly those jurisdictions that have been blacklisted by fatf like like the dprk or Iran, you know, have used crypto to evade sanctions and to generate revenue. DPRK actors have been known to use mixers, among other methods, to launder illicit proceeds. Or they have compromised computers and network systems to generate virtual assets as well. And and it's interesting also how the issue of sanctions, the issue of of, of crypto, the issue of terrorist financing is coming together also around. Blacklisted jurisdictions that represent a, a risk to financial integrity globally.
0: Emma, taking taking this, this idea and the, the notion that there's heightened enforcement, or at least attention from regulators on financial crime risk, are are you seeing in the enforcement actions coming down uh the road here in at least in London, some sort of telltale signs as to what regulators are most focused on? Are they are they going after institutions for things that they should have been doing anyway, or there are heightened expectations that are embedded in what the regulators are asking banks and other institutions to do.
2: So in terms of expectations, in the UK, regulated firms must comply with the FCA's principles, other rules that are set out in the FCA handbook and relevant legislation, The FCA also regularly communicates information and advice that it considers appropriate to help firms understand and meet their obligations. A good example of this is that on the 11th of January this year, the FCA sent a Dear CEO letter to the wholesale broker market. The letter contained their views on the most important risks arising from wholesale brokers that will help drive the FCA supervisory focus for the next two years. In the letter, the FCA outlined criticisms of the systems and controls employed to mitigate financial crime and market abuse, as well as what they called widespread deficiencies in onboarding processes to control financial crime and money laundering. In the letter, the FCA committed to carry out further work in these areas, and there's strong messaging in there to CEOs that they must discuss the letter with fellow directors and or board members, and they need to agree any action that needs to be taken to make required improvements by the end of February this year year. Enforcement is also an effective way of raising awareness of regulatory standards and that's achieved through the publication of enforcement outcomes which contain key messages for firms to consider and implement. As for enforcement priorities in its 2022 to 2025 strategy document the FCA outlined its focus of protecting consumers from serious harm that authorised firms can cause They committed to reducing and preventing financial crime, including a specific commitment to prosecute money laundering and fraud within their remit. They also committed to deliver assertive action on market abuse, promising to use the full range of supervisory and enforcement tools, including criminal and civil sanctions where appropriate, to pursue offenders and deter future wrongdoers. So in short, the FC expectations of regulated firms and their enforcement priorities should be well understood by firms. One thing I, I have seen is that crypto assets is kind of is on everybody's agenda this year because uh, the National Crime Agency has also launched um, a cryptocurrency and virtual assets team. And it's going to have offices dedicated to a proactive cryptocurrency remit. And it's been recently recruiting for officers to join that team. And. Um, Concurrent to that, again, um, we're expecting a couple of consultations from the UK government um, in the crypto space, one about the general regulatory um, approach to crypto assets. So I definitely say that that is a key priority in in the UK uh, for this year. But in terms of other priorities, as I said, um, AML has been something that's been on the agenda for some time um, and is somewhere that... um, that UK enforcement is looking to have an impact. Another another way that the FCA has certainly been trying to um, to address risk is through financial promotions. So I don't know if that's something that others are seeing globally. So um, the, the FCA has been really, you know, has had a financial promotions have been high on their priority list for a few years now. And during twenty twenty two, they've uh, the FCA took down uh, 8,000 misleading advertisements uh, up from 564 in 2021. So one of the things that they um, are trying to do is where they perhaps don't have a a strict regulatory remit, they are looking for ways around those restrictions to try to take action where they can.
0: Very interesting. Uh, Brian, back to you on where you see the regulatory environment tied to these blended risks and obviously then tied to crypto. Uh, how do you see regulators dealing with what is just a lot more complexity uh, in this space than probably ever before?
1: Thanks, Juan. And the the biggest complexity is the global nature uh, of, of crypto. And the firms that and the exchanges and all the firms that are involved don't necessarily have a home country. If you as a domestic regulator said, we don't allow this activity in, in our country does not mean your citizens don't have access. Um, uh, and therein lies the problem uh, that, you, that banning the activity is not uh, an end game. Uh, it simply won't work with the global nature of the internet. In terms of how to, how to regulate this, um, I mean, I kind of have uh, a one, two, three path forward. Uh, this is how I would see it. Um, uh, and this is how I would I would engage. But the the first thing you have to do is engage. We talked about public-private partnerships a few moments ago, but the regulators need to engage with the industry and first understand the risks. You don't not you don't write rules first and then go figure out what the risks are. You figure out what the risks are first and then you can write rules. And I think many of the progressive regulators around the world Including my former regulator have have, have done that of um, uh, engage with the industry first. Second, you want to create a space for innovation that that brings these firms in to the regulatory sphere, and not keep them out of it. And that's only through understanding of the risk and hiring the right people. Um, do you get to that engagement, and do you get rules that make sense for the industry and for for your customers? And there's a there's two ways of really doing that too. I mean. A regulator could create innovation teams, and a lot of regulators are doing that right now. Um, uh, Dubai was on the forefront of this, I think, in creating a bespoke regulator, the Virtual Asset Regulatory Authority, um, uh, who only deals with these digital asset firms, um, and that's a that's a very novel approach. Um, that you start out with people who are not really traditional regulators um, uh, and try to get your your head around what are the risks um, there. So no, ne- neither of those is the perfect solution. But both can work. And then the third element is you, you enforce the rules that you have, and you enforce them strictly. Um, and again, you see uh, some regulators are, you are starting with step three, in my opinion, with enforcing regu- regulation um, before you engage and uh, design rules uh, around the industry.
0: Thank you, Brian. That's a great segue to the theme of public-private partnerships, uh, which Mariano has taken on both in his public career, but also here at the firm, Mariana, do you, do you want to talk about what, where you see public-private partnerships going in 2023, uh, and then maybe circle back to where, where the Egmont Group is going?
3: Sure, Juan. Uh, well, there is definitely an increase in the trend that had, had that had taken off uh, several years ago, back in 2018, uh, with the uh, rise of public-private partnerships. We now see many more jurisdictions interested in in putting up these type of partnerships which to remind everyone uh, our listeners we're not talking about a, you know a informal uh, type of dialogues here we're talking about a structured dialogues institutionalized dialogues are aimed at being sustainable uh, over time at, at addressing the real challenges of of jurisdictions in a joint public private way and that, uh, frankly, have revolutionized the way financial crimes are, are being addressed. Because uh, you, you may recall, Juan, from the very beginning when the AML-CFT system was designed, the flow of information was designed to uh, uh, to be channeled from the private sector to the public sector. PPPs, public-private partnerships, uh, proposed a new method of, of working, which is more efficient, but which really uh, revolutionized the thinking because it also requires the public sector to share and exchange information with the private sector information on its on its on, on risks information on on trends and patterns uh being detected by the public sector but also on the, in the operational models information on cases on leads and strategies uh, to advance cases uh, which is something that has not been seen before so uh I think uh what what we're seeing is uh a, a lot of countries also exploring avenues for enhancing the legal and uh, regulatory architecture to give sustainable pillars to uh public private partnerships and really more interest in regions where we had not seen this trend taking off like in Latin America, for instance, where our firm now is present and also assisting some some of the leading jurisdictions in in putting together uh, PPPs.
0: Yeah, Mariano, your point, your point about a different paradigm is important here. It's, it's about being more proactive between the public and private sector and even finding operational models to, to move toward greater information sharing and risk discovery. So I think that's, that's very important. Mariano, can you speak uh, just briefly on where you see the Egmont group of FIUs headed, um, and in particular with respect
3: to Russia sanctions? Sure. Well, uh, with with regards to Russia sanctions, as you know, international bodies are struggling uh, with the situation. The, the let me just take it a step back and and remind our listeners on what the FATF had decided. Uh, you know, uh, the FATF earlier uh, last year recognized the the role uh, of of uh, the FATF uh, the, the Russian generation had played in in the development of of uh, standards in the region, but also as a result of the invasion uh, of ukraine the fatf really decided to to severely limit uh, russia's role and influence within the fatf in particular fatf decided that it could no lo- that russia could no longer hold any leadership or advisory roles or take part in any decision making on standard setting and at the last plenary it also decided to limit russia's ability to participate in peer review processes participate in fsrb meetings and governance and, and membership matters as well. Now, the Egmont group had been lagging a little bit behind on that. But fortunately, I think towards the end of last year, on December 13th, the heads of FIU, which is the forum where decisions are made at the Egmont level, agreed to take uh, several important uh, decisions in, in connection to Rosfin Monitoring, which is Russia, the Russian Federation's FIU. It decided to revoke Rosfin Monitor's uh, responsibility to host ECMON Group meetings, to revoke uh, its formal ECMON Group uh, leadership advisory and representative positions as well, to revoke uh, physical attendance at ECMON Group meetings and project participation privileges. Uh, So, as of then, uh, as of December, Rosfin Monitor will only be allowed to attend meetings virtually. And uh it also decided to terminate an in-kind support agreement that Rosfin monitoring had with the Ekman group Secretariat, whereby uh, uh monitoring staff also you know contributed to to the Secretariat's role uh, postpone all in-kind contributions from rough monitoring and 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 postpone Rosfin monitoring's corporate obligations with the expectation that payments would resume when the current crisis uh, concludes. I think these are very important steps. The Egmont Group is a much more complex organization to make decisions at, 165 members need to come together. And the fact that the heads of FIU have reached this decision uh, really speaks uh, as to uh, broader consensus, I would say, of the international community around Russia's uh, responsibility in in, in the conflict, but also uh, around how this conflict has really breached the underlying essence and pillars that sustain these, these organizations. In particular, in the case of the Egmont Group, has really broken the trust that brings FIUs together.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and the saga of how the Egmont Group would treat Russia was obviously in focus, as well as uh, how FATF was treating Russia. I think it goes right to the heart of whether or not Russia can be part of the decision-making and formulation of standards when uh, they're viewed as an outlier or a, a nation state or jurisdiction that's rupturing standards, right? And so I think that's Correct. that's the tricky part here. Uh, and certainly uh, Egmont Group and FATF have spoken with, with their actions. Brian and Emma, I want to turn back to you on just the issue of sanctions writ large. How do you see regulators dealing with the implementation of sanctions, especially given that there isn't necessarily unanimity as to how to apply sanctions or when and where to apply them, Brian.
1: That's a pretty tough question. Uh, one to uh, kind of end our, our discussions here. But um, regulators around the world are struggling uh, with this. They're 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 normally used to the sanctions world emanating from the from the United Nations, um, uh, um, and they like to lean on that. But now you've got um, uh, kind of regional groups um, who are taking uh, different attitudes toward sanctions uh, vis-a-vis their their own economy. Uh, I guess and how how all that works. So I think we're we're in a, a a political battle here. No one wants to see war and and no one wants to see uh death. Um uh, and particularly that something that's just completely unprovoked so the sanctions that are in place I think are 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 worthwhile. Um uh, but uh, there's a lot of engagement that has to happen around the world um uh, with the regulators and with governments um, to make sure these sanctions take take hold and have the effect that's desired,
0: Emma, let me ask you the question slightly differently uh, because we're talking about an FCA and a regulatory environment in London that is post-Brexit, right? and now has a degree of independence from Europe, but also has to manage uh, sort of European sensibilities now sitting outside. so how how do you see not just sanctions enforcement, but but financial regulation? in the post-Brexit context out of London?
2: So the post-Brexit position is an interesting one. The scale of EU law that was relevant to UK financial services meant that it wasn't reformed before the UK left the EU and was instead converted into domestic law and is known as retained EU law. The UK government's retained EU law dashboard includes 365 pieces of EU law relevant to the financial and insurance sectors. As you might imagine, the process to review all that legislation, create new rules, consult on them where required and implement them, will take several years, so it's no surprise that there wasn't an immediate swathe of legislative change after after the UK withdrew from the EU. The Financial Services and Markets Bill, which is currently going through Parliament, provides the architectures to support a move away from this retained EU law relating to financial services. Retained EU law will remain in force until it's revoked and will be replaced by new, um, until it's replaced by new or modified legislation. There's also a provision to restate revoked legislation to preserve key definitions, existing powers and processes, etc. In the meantime, the bill provides for targeted modifications of retained EU law for certain purposes, which include protecting the stability of the UK financial system. It'll be really interesting to track the revocation and replacement of retained EU law in the coming months and years, and identify the issues where the UK diverges from the EU in relation to financial services regulation. Some indications may come in the UK government consultation on the general regulatory approach to crypto assets, which is expected within weeks.
0: Fantastic. We have about a minute left. I want to do a final lightning round with the three of you. If there's something to forecast or to highlight that you haven't had a chance to talk about that you see as important for 2023, I want to give you just a, a moment here to identify for the audience. Brian, is there anything you want to focus on?
1: Well, I think you're going to see this year is the year not only of, of regulation, but the year of enforcement based on activity that's taken place in this crypto digital space in in 2019, 2020, 2021. This is the culmination where the ground is beginning to be laid clear of what is allowed and what is not allowed and how these uh, entities are going to uh, interact with, with uh, traditional regulators.
0: Brian, for the year of enforcement, Emma, what, what's on your mind?
2: So uh, I'm really interested to see what the FCA does in relation to crypto. This will be the year of change for them where it's brought into their domain. So I'm interested to see what happens there. It coincides with the departure of the director of enforcement at the FCA. He brought in a, an enormous change where a, a number, of, a large number of investigations were open. But the, as a result of that large number of investigations, there hasn't been as many outcomes over recent years as there has in the past. So, really interested to see who comes in and what change they bring and whether they look to make an impact early doors in relation to um, crypto assets in particular.
0: So we'll be on the lookout there to see what happens (laughs) with the FCA personalities.
3: Thank you. Mariano, a final thought for the audience. Yeah, Juan, you left me with the hunger to say something I had left behind on sanctions, so I'll take advantage of the opportunity. I think important to highlight the tensions between the the current sanctions efforts, particularly against threats like like Russia's threat, and uh, correspondent banking relationships across the world, and the and and the risk of a of a new wave of de risking coming coming to effect. Uh, as as we said, many jurisdictions across the world do not have effective sanctions regimes in place. They have an inability to tag along the effort that the global uh, that the coalition of democracies has been implementing against uh, uh, threats to global peace and security and to global financial integrity like Russia's threat. And and this generates attention in the um, administration and the management of correspondent banking risks, particularly um, US banks, European banks, UK banks, with the rest of the world and particularly with those countries that don't have sanctions regimes in place. Which could potentially lead to to uh, further de-risking uh, and and create other undesired consequences that end up generating more risk as well from from other angles. So something to be on the watch for. And I think for uh, countries that are leading the effort to prioritize uh, the idea of, of encouraging and advancing and promoting the enactment of sanctions regimes across uh, the world to to be able to harmonize this in a more in a more standardized way.
0: Thank you, Mariana. I would just add uh, the the issue of U.S.-China tensions adding to complexity when it comes to sanctions, export controls, sanctions evasion and investment security issues. I think we're going to see that emerge in spades in the wake of the Russia conflict, but also uh, in the context of, of broader tensions geopolitically. But that's it for myself, Wanzerati, Brian Starwalt, Emma Walker, Mariana Federici. I want to thank you all for a great conversation. I want to thank the audience for joining us on this episode of Fincast. That's it for episode 36. We welcome you to the next episode. Thank you for joining the regulators forecast. I'm Wanzerati. That was Fincast. Thank you for listening to FinCast. We hope you join us for future episodes. Have a great day.